Hello, and welcome to The Learner Podcast, a weekly conversation with global education leaders for people who are passionate about the future of learning. I'm your host, reporter and author, Jenny Anderson. Okay, people, you are going to thank me for this one. My guests today are Sam Chaudhry and Liam Don, co-founders of Class Dojo, a community of 51 million teachers, parents, and students. That is a communication app, looks a little bit like a content play, and now is building a virtual sandbox for kids who already know each other to hang out, create, and play in the metaverse. Investors recently gave Class Dojo $125 million to build this space, on top of the $75 million it's already raised, in part because they feel they are making progress on the mission they defined in 2011, to give every kid on the planet an education they love. If that sounds ridiculously lofty, and I certainly thought it did, consider their track record. Through 2018, they built a wildly successful free app to help teachers and families communicate better, ultimately reaching nine out of 10 K through eight schools in the United States and across 180 countries. Having connected to 51 million kids, they then created beautiful animated videos about things like growth mindset and empathy, videos teachers use in the classroom, but parents can also use at home. Now they are on to building Dojo Islands, or the Monsterverse, as teachers have dubbed it affectionately. No one likes the term Metaverse. A safe, private place for kids to play online, which parents hopefully will feel good about. Class Dojo doesn't build curriculum, and they don't think of themselves as a content play. They're a destination, one they hope is safe and protected, with tools for kids to play with. This world should really have an infinite breadth and depth of learning experiences that really help kids explore and discover their, their own passions. And as Liam was saying, they, they might be very divergent, very different directions. But finding that spark, finding the thing that kind of relights you up and being able to explore it through like a range of games and simulations and experiences, whatever it is, I'm very excited about that, that kind of breadth and depth. And then the second thing then is to be able to do that with kind of like your tribe. You know, and because Dojo is really these small communities, you get to be there with your friends. Like all startups, Dojo has tripped along the way. In 2014, questions were raised about privacy, and it announced it would allow parents to delete kids' data after a year. This crystallized an important point about the company. In an era where data is gold because money is minted on the internet via targeted ads, Class Dojo has never had ads, so it doesn't need the data the way Facebook or Google does. The question that keeps coming up for me with Class Dojo is whether a wildly successful VC-backed company that vows to be free to teachers forever and claims to want for our kids what we want for them, safe virtual spaces where creativity and creation reign supreme, the question is, can that succeed? And are we naive to think it can? Is it possible to create a place on the internet for kids that is neither hijacking their amygdala nor monetizing their small eyeballs? Liam and Sam, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us. Great to be here. Cheers, Jenny. I was going to see if you guys could do that in unison. Like that was going to be a, a test of your <laughs> first test of teamwork of, of your cohesion and teamwork. <laughs> I have seen Class Dojo described many ways: a feedback app, a behavior management tool, a communication app, a content play, and now it is a metaverse for the kids player. In as few words as possible, what is Class Dojo? Sam, why don't you start with that one? <laughs> well, yeah, look, I think there's a lot that we've done well from the start of the company. One thing I don't think I've necessarily been very vocal about is like the overall purpose of the company. We, everyone inside the company knows that we haven't really shared it. So when Liam and I started uh, Dojo, the mission is to give and still is to give every kid on the planet an education they love. When you look at that, there's kind of two parts to that mission. One of them is, well, how, how do you reach every kid on the planet? And then the second part is then how do you give each kid an education they love? Both of these are very difficult problems. And we kind of have worked on them in that order. 
So the first part, and this is kind of answering your question, until recently, I think what people had understood class dojo to be was a way that teachers and kids and families communicate with each other. And so you can think of it really as a communication app. They're sharing pictures and videos and, and moments and messages through the school. They're sharing the learning experiences kids are already having. And that's kind of grown quite far. More recently, and we'll probably get into this later on, we started to think about, well, how can we work on the second part of that mission, uh, which is to start to give kids learning experiences they love. So I think it's very fair to think of Dojo as a communication app so far. And kind of what it's becoming is a way for kids to get learning experiences they love. Liam, do you want to add anything to that? No, I very much agree with that. I think if you go right back to the very early days of the product, before we had parents, we only had teachers. In that context, you know, all, all of the classroom tools and, and everything, we were kind of facilitating like real life interactions. And I think that's not a big thing about kind of class dojo and we'll try to maintain this. A lot of the time it's people talking about something that happened in real life or um, sharing something that happened in real life when someone's not there. And so when we talk about the virtual world side, it's sort of similar with that as well. We kind of want to create a space where kids who know each other in real life can hang out in between the times when they are actually together. And so that could be like sports clubs that only meet once a week and so on. But I think that's what it is right now. A lot of it's about bridging, not big gaps, but small gaps. So a lot of the platforms on the internet are about sort of talking to someone who lives halfway across the world or playing games with them or Twitter is people all over the world, for example. But this is much more about a very already local community that already knows one another and trying to sort of just give them really great interactions, basically. One of the things that marks a lot of the coverage around you, and certainly my understanding of you all, is that in a world that's defined by rounds and raises and exits, um, you waited eight years to even produce any revenue. Your product to teachers was free, and your website very prominently says, you know, free for teachers forever. Pretty definitive commitment right there. Did you always mean to play the long game, or did you get lucky because you got a lot of users and you were able to? I mean, you've got to remember the context, right? Like Liam and I uh, came out to the Bay Area from the UK a little over 10 years ago now. And, you know, we left it with a family and friends and you know, partners at the time to come out come out here together and, and start what became Dojo. And so, so I think it was always one of those unusual things. It, it wasn't, it was, very, it was kind of intentional that we were going to come out and do that. And I think like there's an intentionality to the mission being the same from the early days, we didn't know all the details of the plan, but at a high level, the plan has stayed kind of the same, right? We were going to find a way to get to, to some scale. We didn't know if we if it would work. In retrospect, I'm like, oh, some parts of this have worked out. At the time, it was highly risky and unproven. And like the odds are were against us and probably, you know, probably still are against us, right? Like it's a big mission. So, so I think there was like a long-term orientation. And I think like we were willing to be patient because we're intentional about the thing that we were trying to do. But it was very risky on the making money point. I think we were, again, we were very clear about this from the start, you know, and I think like companies sometimes get in a sticky spot with this, where they promise one thing and then do another. Uh, I think we tried to be very clear. We're like, look, we think in the end, if we are successful at what we're trying to do with the company, that's not only like great for the world. We also think it would just be like a really great business, but it, it pays to, to to build that for the long term, not to uh, get too excited for the short term. There's a very well-trodden path. A lot of companies turn up, sell some software to schools, and they make some money and like, you know, that's it. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I think our insight from the start was that it's kind of like serving the wrong customer. Like in our minds, schools are fantastic. I was a teacher. They're trying to do an amazing job for kids. The person who we're all trying to benefit and do the most for is, is kids at the end of the day, kids and their families. It's the consumer. And I, th I always thought the strategy of you know, trying to flog software to schools was a bit like, you know, if you're trying to build Airbnb if, by selling software to hotels, like it, it never made all that much sense to me. I think schools are trying to do an amazing job for kids. We should help them. 
But in the end, we should be clear that kids and families are the customer. And I think that meant we were going to build like a consumer company in the best interests of kids and families. But that was unproven, right? Like nobody had really done that. So you had to kind of like be willing to, to believe that that could be possible. You didn't launch a revenue generating product until 2018-19 with Beyond School, which complements in school learning with kind of at-home tutorials. And you have a lot of SEL content, which was great, focused on growth mindset and on empathy, really beautifully animated videos. I, I wrote about these a while ago. I was very impressed by them. Why did you get into the content game? Was this just the natural progression of the journey you've just explained to me? And was any part of you like, do we really want to be in content? Yeah, we we didn't think of it as sort of getting into the content game exactly. Those videos were designed for the classroom as well. So we spend a lot of time in classrooms kind of watching teachers and how they teach and what they're struggling with and uh, both in our product and in general, like what's good about the job and what's hard about the job and stuff like that. And the origin of making those videos, which are very short sort of five minute videos, was we, we saw that a lot of the time teachers would have a lesson and it gets done a bit early and then, you know, they'll be like, okay, kids, like just draw for five minutes or draw for 10 minutes. So we sort of designed it for those moments and the kind of topics that we were talking about, like empathy and persistence and things like that. One, we thought, you know, that was kind of maybe one of the most interesting kind of meta learning skills that we could do. But also the other part was that there's getting into content and then there's getting into curriculum and getting into curriculum is a whole different kettle of fish. And there are many, many curriculums, just even globally, but also even within the US, there's a lot of debate and we, we print different textbooks for different states and so on. That wasn't something that we wanted to get into or that we really felt qualified to, to get into, frankly. So I think these sort of more horizontal skills that I'm talking about seemed like a more natural fit and something that would also fit into five minutes and just be like a, a boost to the, the day for the teacher. When we spoke with teachers and, and families, and ask them like, we're like, hey, what what do you kind of wish your kids could learn or would learn at school that they don't learn today? Nobody said like, oh, I, I really wish there were, you know, there was even more curriculum, like the conventional kind of narrowly defined curriculum. I think um, at least in the ages we're dealing with, there was a lot about, well, how do you deal with failure? And like, how do you, you know, deal with your own emotions and all this kind of stuff? And I think, I think that's the stuff that gets missed a lot in school. And it's some of the most important stuff about growing up and being a kid. And it felt like people wanted that and we were able to to be there for it. So I think this segues nicely to this question of data. You all have a ton of data. You have over 50 million people in your community. You've been emphatic that you are not a data company, that you don't keep your student data for more than a year. At a time when data is gold, this is, again, a quite different tactic. How have you been able to chart such a different course there? Data is gold to a certain type of company, and it all comes down to the business model. Similar to what I was sort of saying about small communities versus kind of big global networks, the big trend and the big money maker, frankly, on the internet over the last 10 years has been advertising and to, you know, make more targeted ads that uh, better preempt what consumers want. Uh, you need data and you need to know where they're shopping and what they bought already and what they haven't bought already and, and so on. So if you're in the business of ads, you know, that's that's really helpful. And it's also helpful to kind of find new ways to gather as much data as you can. If you're not in the business of ads, which we're not, there's no advertising on, on Class Dojo. We just sell a subscription. And I think there's a clear kind of, this is what you're going to get. And this is how much it costs. And you can choose to opt into that. It's still, as, as we mentioned, is free for schools and free for districts and also free for parents, if, apart from the optional stuff they can buy in a subscription. So basically that sort of the, the data then becomes not very useful. And it's also even a myth that sort of Facebook, for example, sells your data to other people. They use your data and then they sell access to you for advertisers based on that data, right? But the data, they, they kind of want to keep that to themselves. So I think often people say that a company is sort of selling your data 
And that doesn't kind of go on as much either. So there really isn't an incentive for us to do anything like that. And we're also kind of not really monetizing the data at all. We're just selling you a product and it's freemium. So, you know, I think we kind of look at it as that thing about if you're not the customer, you're the product, you know, that's not the case with us, but you could be a prospect because you could be someone that will decide to subscribe in a year. So it's, it's a pretty traditional sort of business, you know, <laughs> I guess in that sense, we, we sell a product for money. Generally in tech, people think a lot about designing great products and all the rest of it. But I think like designing your business is actually very important as well. And one of the points that Liam just made was like your business model is really important because it tells you who your real customers are. It tells you who like pays you money so you can pay the bills. And I think like being aligned with your customers in your business model is just so important. So from the start, we're like, well, you know, Liam named one or two companies where there's there's a divorce, right, between like the user and the customer. And advertisers on one hand and you and me on, on the other and like you know you never want that kind of tension i think where possible you really want to be aligned with doing what's always in the best interest of your end user and for us we're like very clear from the start that well in the end we're here to serve kids and their families and that's what we've aligned our incentives to you have a lot of interesting data from a signaling standpoint what are you learning from it in terms of what do parents want what do teachers want what are the things that you've seen in there that are sort of surprising and interesting and have led you down paths you might not have otherwise gone down? I can only really answer that in a very high level way, I suppose. But we just sort of discovered what parents want, I think, mostly is sort of reassurance or to know their kid's doing okay. So that's that's kind of why they're on Class Dojo a lot of time is, is to find out what happened at school today, to see not like pages and pages of like, this is the homework or these are the grades, but just to see like one photo or a video from school that day that makes them feel like the kid's not going into an environment they don't understand at all or they have no idea what's happening over there. But in terms of how we learned that from the data, what we've also learned is parents aren't sort of very proactive app users in terms of them spending time on screen. They, they kind of want to open up Class Dojo, find out what's happening at school, check that out. We, you know, did some experiments where parents are more like using tools and stuff at home. You know, kids want to spend time together online here, but I think the parents, they really want to find out what's happening with their kid at school or in a different sort of club or wherever that is. Does that inform how you think about sort of the metaverse versus more family related content? In terms of that being a place where kids can hang out with their friends and, and sort of play with just the friends they know, then yeah, that kind of insight about parents would inform that because parents kind of want to know what's going on there, but they also don't want to, I don't know, be running around in the 3D world as a experience. Like it's not that appealing, but they do kind of want to get the highlight reel of what's what their kid is up to in there the same way they get the highlight reel of what's happening in the classroom but they don't have to like be turning every page of the textbook and, and double checking all of that you know and we want to encourage that as well because we also want to create a space where kids feel independent and feel like they have agency and feel like it's really their space and not like a heavily monitored supervised space by parents and at the same time we also do want to kind of create the safety that's necessary so i think that's about kind of giving parents enough info to know what's going on, but without having that be kind of overbearing. You know, we talked to probably more Gen Alpha than like most companies on the planet. And I think one thing that we realized some years ago was that we kind of sniffed a very fundamental shift in internet usage coming for, for like younger kids. Now, it, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about before. The world that we all kind of grew up in, the first iteration, I think, of social products or communities online, like we call them social media, they really biased a lot towards media. And so it really became like scrolling feeds and, you know, consuming content, all this kind of like very Silicon Valley sounding stuff. And, you know, in retrospect, that was never really very natural as a human behavior, boosting viral posts and obsessively following celebrities, like never really made us feel very good. 
But when you think about very fundamental human needs, um, one of them that we've always had is the need to be with our friends and our family and our community, generally be connected to them. And I think what was cool and we started to see with kids is that they're kind of instinctively biasing towards doing that online rather than this kind of behavior that we slipped into. And so this thing of like actually having real social interactions online rather than, you know, passively scrolling news feeds, like, but really getting together with the friends, really doing things, you know, um, you've seen companies like Discord, Roblox, a few others. I think that was, it was just like a very important observation, I think, that, that we gleaned from from talking to our base. Gosh, this is, I mean, this makes me happy because this is definitely my children's age. I have to say I'm not witnessing that, <laughs> but I hope you're <laughs> right. Pick that apart a tiny bit more. So their consumption's different. They want more in real life, but on in virtual worlds. I wouldn't say that they're moving away from media yeah. um, because obviously I think I think kids can scroll TikTok for a very long time and, and TikTok is fundamentally media. So the, I think the, the difference that Sam's talking about is sort of the bifurcation of social and social media in social media. So it was sort of social media and Instagram. It wasn't quite clear if it was a place to follow celebrities or a place to follow your friends. And kind of, I think, mixing the two means that you see these kind of extremely polished celebrity lives alongside you know the one that you're attempting to post and you're, and you're trying to keep up with that and i think that's very bad for mental health what we're seeing i think with the younger generation is that they're kind of retreating in the social side to to smaller spaces and discord would be an example of that that's number one and they're also kind of spending a lot more time in virtual environments but often the multi-user virtual environments so that would be like roblox or minecraft where they're actually talking all the time but they're also doing something in the younger ages that we're talking about, the doing something is pretty important because it's hard for like an eight-year-old to sit on Zoom and have a long-winded conversation with someone. And, you know, we saw like 30 kids on Zoom during the pandemic and that was extremely non-engaging. But even just like the kind of conversation that we're having now, I think the younger kids, it's a lot more helpful to be referencing something that's happen happening in the here and now. We're talking about something very abstract right now, right? And it, it, I think when you're talking to a kid, a lot of the time, either you're trying to be Socratic and asking questions and kind of, you know, helping to guide them towards something, or you're talking about what's around you and what happened yesterday and very, you know, real kind of things. Yeah. Well, this, I think this segues beautifully into the monsterverse or the virtual world or whatever we're going to call it here. So you all have raised a whopping $125 million to build a monsterverse for children, a safe, closed virtual world, which is intended to build all the skills most parents would love to build in their children, creativity, creation, imagination. What was the thinking behind this? I think you've articulated some of it, but you know, when you went to your board and said, this is the direction we're going, what were your kind of top three data points? I assume one of them was your generation alpha sort of habits are changing. That's got to be a, a compelling one. What else? Yeah, that was some of the trend side, but I think in terms of what we can bring to the table and, and why I think we have a unique strength there is because of the kind of closed and safe and private communities that we have. So that all seemed like a trend. You know, we spoke to a lot of parents who said, okay, my kid's playing Roblox and I kind of begrudgingly agreed to it during the pandemic because, you know. I had to. <laughs> I had to, uh, but I don't feel great about him playing on there with, you know, all kinds of random people. So first of all, our network was a big driver there, but I'll throw over to Sam. Yeah, I think that's one. I think there were one or two others maybe. So Dojo as a company, we actually went uh, distributed a year or two prior to the pandemic just as an experiment and we were trying it out, but it kind of got us thinking. We we're like, well, for the longest time, all of the needs we've ever had, you know, to work or to make friends or to learn, all these things have been met almost exclusively in the real world. 
really in the last 20 years, we've had the internet, we've been able to do some of these things more online. And our hypothesis was a lot of society would shift towards more of a hybrid future. So not, you know, I know being uploaded into the matrix and being online the whole time and, and not being as we have been completely in the offline world, but mixing the two. And I think, honestly, I think some people got a little excited in the pandemic and thought everything was just going to stay online forever. And our, our view is always like it's we're moving into a hybrid future and everything that we've done will be expressed in both the real world and, and the online world. And we should kind of prepare for that. So that was one. The community's point Liam made is another. And I think maybe the other one was that I think there's a growing sense that families have had for honestly decades where they kind of like want more for their kids. It's Schools do an incredibly hard job. You know, like there's 500 different kids with 500 different sets of hopes and dreams and needs. And and it's a really, really difficult job for any school, for any teacher to meet every single kid in all the ways they want to be met. And I think generally you've seen this with kind of more centralized institutions. There's been more consumer choice over the last decades. And I think there is a sense that maybe somehow that would be interesting in education as a complement to what's happening in school. So, you know, when we went to the board with this stuff, we were like, well, put all this together. What does it mean for Dojo? Well, like schools have helped kids learn in the real world, like forever. And as society shifts into this hybrid future, we think there's also going to be a virtual place where kids can come together to learn. And that place is yet to be built. Could we envision sort of virtual recess? Like, in other words, is there yeah, also a, a, yeah. a beta school? <laughs> but is that a, is that actually a thing? Business school? I don't know. I've never heard that term before. But like, <laughs> I know you're creating it for the kids. And I actually, I imagine they want it out of school 100%. But I just wonder if that's also just something you can create. Yeah. Uh, in fact, it's being used that way right now. So we haven't rolled out to 100% of the class that you user base, but we were quite quite surprised by how much usage we saw in the classroom until we realized it was the same kind of moments in the lesson that I mentioned earlier with the videos. So now like those last 10 minutes or so of the lesson, often they were like, all right, kids, like everyone can hop on and run around on, on Dojo Islands, which is the name of sort of the Monsterverse, the first Monsterverse thing there. And it's been amazing to kind of see some videos of that and visit classrooms that are doing this because you've got, you know, say 30 kids, each one is on their own Chromebook, but they're all in the same room. So they're kind of yelling out to each other, like, come over here, like, let's, let's try and push this thing up the hill. And it's an incredibly kind of dynamic classroom that with everyone in the same room. And the only thing I can compare that to is sort of like in the nineties when kids would play like four player Nintendo all in the same room and you'd kind of yell at each other. And that was a much more social experience. And I think a lot of online gaming is now where you're all in different rooms yelling at the screen. So this this was you know really awesome to see. And so yes, I do think there's a great use case that we want to build on this in the classroom or in recess during school. But it's also, I think, quite useful to kind of support communities and support kids to build relationships with kids they know outside of school or in between soccer practice or in between band practice or whatever. So what is your goal with this? Is it called Dojo Islands? That's the uh, first version that we've rolled out. So we're kind of rolling out an experience and how that's going to evolve. It's called Dojo Islands because that's the one island that kids can play on right now. The goal is that we want to make that a lot more, I guess, sort of customizable and buildable and kind of make it much more of a sandbox type of environment where kids can kind of experiment, fail safely, try out lots of different things. So a lot of what we're building onto it is like the enormous kind of extensibility and experimentability of the thing. And then it's sort of to support communities of kids you know, just to give them a lot of agency to, to find out what they are really excited about. Is that kind of more of a science and logic kind of direction? Is it more of a creative or artistic direction? Just ways for them to kind of express themselves and try on those different sort of hats, I suppose, and, and see what fires them up. And I think you can do that best in a really open-ended kind of sandbox environment. You know, the belief 
I think that we said at the start was that the world gets better to the extent that people discover their talents and then like refine them, make the most of them and are able to contribute them to the world. And so today I think you have the situation where most people don't really get that chance and it's nobody's fault. It's just kind of the conditions that they face, right? Like it's very hard for any kind of local school to nurture all the interests and passions and and, and so on um, that, that you might be into. So I, I kind of think like one of the exciting things for me with, with the virtual world is that you can start to design a place where kids can learn really kind of from first principles. And we're not there yet, but some things that you, know, you might expect to see are, you know, this world should really have an infinite breadth and depth of learning experiences that really help kids explore and discover their, their own passions. And as Liam was saying, they, they might be very divergent, very different directions, but finding that spark, finding the thing that kind of really lights you up and being able to explore it through like a range of games and simulations and experiences, whatever it is. I'm very excited about that, that kind of breadth and depth. And then the second thing then is to be able to do that with kind of like your tribe, you know, and because Dojo is really these small communities, you get to be there with your friends. So it's not a bunch of random people and a bunch of strangers and things. It's like, here are people who you really care about and really love. And some of them you'll share some passions and interests with. And then I think the third thing is that while we've grown a lot and we're in a lot of different countries, you know, we, we've got to remember that like there's a lot of kids that don't really get to go to a great school or get really access to great learning experiences. And I think it's important to me that whatever we're building here is accessible to any kid on the planet with an internet connection. But aren't you charging for this? No. No, oh, this like, is free. Yeah, yeah. You never want to gain access to this kind of thing. If we are building the place where every kid on earth could come to learn, like the every matters. For sure. So Liam, take me on a 30 second journey into Dojo Islands. What am I going to see? What would I witness? If I'm a kid, I'm going in there. What am I doing? The whole island is buildable, a little bit kind of like Minecraft style. So you can build and customize everything around you, but also all of your friends are there. So you've got, you know, maybe 15 other kids who are running around all as their kind of customized fast Asian monster. So you can choose all of your different outfits and things like that. You can play hide and seek. You can play all kinds of kind of team games like that or capture the flag and things like that. That's what you can do today. What Sam alluded to when Sam's talking about kind of infinite learning experiences, you might kind of raise an eyebrow and say, say, well, how are you going to do that? <laughs> but I think, yeah, another part of the thing that we kind of envisioned here was very easy to use creator tools that, you know, teachers can use. There's the customizability that kids have in the world like being able to kind of build the world, but also giving teachers the kind of tools where they can make lessons and they can kind of create things for their kids to do and then share those with other teachers. So the way you get to like truly, you know, big broad range of experiences is I think to allow people to make stuff in the world. And so that's a big part of what we're building. And there will probably be some moderation of the user generated kind of content like that. But I think making it straightforward enough that you don't need to be an engineer or programmer or, you know, a 3D designer to do it, but you can just be a sixth grade teacher that's kind of what we're shooting for with the the tools we're making. Wow. So you're basically becoming a professional development company. I know that you have a bunch of that actually on your website already, but this is you're <laughs> going to help teachers become learning engineers, 3D designers, and app developers. So when you talk about opening it up to creators and developers, you don't mean any, because obviously that would potentially put your kind of attempt to make this closed and safe giantly at risk. You're talking about opening it up to people in the community. So parents and teachers, is that right? You know, it's a platform for kids, so it's never going to be a kind of a, hey, everyone submit whatever you want and just you know, <laughs> like uh, allow people to, to switch that on in their world. No, I think something similar to how the App Store kind of reviews apps, they are probably not as strict as we would be on some of the content, but essentially we would allow creators to like submit lessons that they've made and then we will review them and, and give them a play and then put them on this sort of index of different things that, that people can do in the world. You mentioned sort of professional development. Teachers are making tons of stuff all the time. Teachers are like, 
content creators for their classroom, right? So I think they're really going to enjoy this. You know, teachers create tons of content that they share on, say, Teachers Make Teachers uh, and a lot that they make just for their own class. And so I can really kind of imagine teachers making great lessons that work for their classroom and then sharing them in this sort of very engaging format for kids where 30 kids can play in the same place at the same time. And it's a place that you, the teacher, have made. What direction has this taken you in that you hadn't expected when you all started on this? The thing that we didn't expect was quite how popular it would be in the classroom. So I think maybe you maybe you saw that coming because you asked about it immediately. But yeah, we kind of initially envisioned that it would start at home and maybe eventually we would you know, earn the right to be used in the classroom. But actually teachers have already figured out how to use it for lessons. So I mentioned you can build blocks and stuff. And the teacher said, we've been studying Roman aqueducts. So I had everyone build aqueducts in the world. You know, they were in teams building kind of the best version of that. And so that's already something they're doing today. And it's not like we created a module around that or anything. And in fact, that teacher can't really create a module around it right now. They can just sort of verbally tell their kids, hey, run into the world and try this out, which they did. So I think that's always a really good sign when you see that in an early product where people are kind of, I say, like hacking it in some way, like using the product in a way that it wasn't initially designed for or, or figuring out a workaround. That's a really great sign and a really good signal to that you should consider building more things to support that. And I will also say that teachers are the absolute best at like, kind of MacGyvering something out of something else. So they're a really good source of, of inspiration as well. Necessity has forced this upon them for time eternal. <laughs> yeah. Strapped budgets, 30 mm -hmm. kids, and uh, yeah, it becomes a life skill, a survival skill, perhaps. Sam, yeah. did you want to add something to that? Oh, it's just a fun one. We had recently our first birthday party, totally organically in, uh, in, in the virtual world. Kids wanting to get together and have a birthday party there, which is really fun. Could you see that? <laughs> like, are you watching the birthday party? No, uh, we just heard about it from, from a, oh. I think it was a teacher or wrote in or something. Oh, it's just so cool. Like, it probably wasn't the first one that happened. It was probably the first one that a teacher The first one we heard of, yeah. Other than kind of user numbers and engagement, is there other stuff you're looking at to kind of measure your effectiveness? Not really in the traditional sense. So, I mean, as I said earlier, we don't do curriculum. We don't really do specific teaching, you know, inventions. It's not a style of teaching math or anything like that. You know, Sam mentioned our kind of company vision mission earlier, which is to give every child on earth an education they love. And I sometimes point out to people internally, like there's nothing in that statement that says like, we want to give every child on earth a more effective education or one that gives them better grades or one that gets them into a better college. We're not really saying that. However, implicit in it for me is that if you love your education or if you love learning, you will drive yourself through, you know, a lot more of it. You'll you'll drive yourself through a lot more learning if you love what you're doing. I've definitely had that experience myself, like the experience of being pushed through a subject, you know, very unwillingly and just about scraping through that. And that's one way. Or there's sort of being inspired to like want to run through it. And then, you know, I think the results are much better that way. So the answer is no, like we don't really quantify it, but <clears throat> I think that's partly because and this may come from my background. So I went to a Steiner school, a Waldorf school, which is kind of famously not very focused on grades, which can be a, a problem as you get older. But in the young years, I think it's very, very important. And I do think a big problem with public education in a bunch of countries is how obsessed we are with measurement and, and sort of saying, hey, if we're measuring something at seven years old, what would be even better is to measure it at four years old and we can see how kids are tracking and we can try to study everything we do and try to figure out whether that makes these grades go up. But I think a big part of that approach is you're looking at basically one outcome metric. You're like, what are the outcomes? And the outcome is grades. And it's sort of a naive sort of first order way of attacking the problem, I think. And, you know, with our mission being sort of give every child an education they love, I guess you have to take it on faith that like if kids love their education and they love learning, 
they will kind of get better results or you have to wait a long time to see that result pay off. You know, you have to wait 10 years. And perhaps that's the other thing which I think relates to a lot of things in the modern world is are we willing to wait for 10 years, 15 years to see a payoff or are we going to try to see a year over year improvement every single year, which I think is sort of a linear chasing of metrics effectively. I think what you're pointing to, Liam, is that a lot of the ideas in the kind of conventional education system, they kind of were never really, I think, formed for the circumstances of like this century or the future or kind of where we're going. And I think there's like a bit of a tension here, right? Because I think, I, I don't want to get into all the trite comparisons, but I think I think there are, there is one view of the world, which is like quite a top-down view that, look, we're really trying to build a mass education system and we need to you know measure all the inputs and outputs. But the problem with this is like, you know, people aren't standardized to begin with. You know, people have like an enormous diversity of talents and capacities. And I think the world is better off when everybody's like specific and unique kind of light shines really bright. And so rather than starting from the top down, I think you really do need to start at the human level, start like, start with people. Like, try, you know, I think our job here ought to be trying to help kids wake up to what is special about them and then cultivate that and develop that. So that, that's why the mission is worded the way it is, to, to Liam's point, that you know, it really is about helping kids find the thing that they love and the things that they love and explore those. And I'm hopeful that the virtual world will be one way to do that because it gives you a breadth. You kind of have to go be able to go broad and explore a wide variety of things and then be able to go deep on the things that you love and do that with a tribe that kind of supports you and kind of find your spark and then find your tribe. And, you know, like it's a wonderful way to be. And I think the world rewards uniqueness in that way more than, you know, being yet another stamped out kind of of cookie cutter um, type person who checked the boxes. But to get back to your question, well, then you're like, well, how do we really know if kids are loving this and, and, and learning something along the way? You know, then you get to really human kind of level measures. And I think that the longer term answer is like, there'll be more and more interesting measures that emerge. But in the near term, you know, one thing we talk about a lot internally is like, well, if we're really building something that kids love, like, do they ask for it on their birthday? Because that would be a real test. Like if we are building an education company whose products that kids ask for on their birthday, then you're onto something. And so, and that I think is the litmus test for, for building, like really listening to consumers and building things that they love. So that's one that I think about today. If you have a behavior management tool, which obviously teachers can choose to use or not, and they can opt in or out and they can choose how they use it. Is that not promoting a sort of behaviorism? And is that not sort of encouraging a sort of hyper tracking and hyper measuring? And if we treasure what we measure and we're suddenly measuring even more things, including kids time, experience in the metaverse, does it all become at all fraught for you? Do you have a sort of any philosophical tension with kind of what you're creating? And I actually think what you're both articulating as a sort of aspiration for where you'd like this to go. Yeah, I think with the behavior side to me, it isn't actually about measurement. It isn't actually about the data that is generated, which is why we delete that data. It's more about the sort of communication in the moment and the cycle of like a day or a week. I've definitely sort of thought about that a lot and thought about the sort of elements of positive reinforcement, how intrinsic or extrinsic is that and things like that. On balance, if you parachute into an average classroom in America and watch how much learning gets done, it can be very, very kind of uh, jarring. So I think to me, there's a role for a small amount of kind of positive reinforcement that yes, is a little tiny bit extrinsic because that just gets you over the hump and gets you into the part that our mission is about, which is kids actually loving learning, kids getting an education they love. And the same as, you know, I think about myself, I think about myself now in my career, there are little humps and sometimes you need to get over those humps. And not every single moment can be intrinsically, you know, delightful. Even with the best teacher in the world, some parts are rough. To the first point, it's not really about the data. Like the data exists for as long as it's useful for the people, 
in that situation, which is really the kid, the teacher, and the parent. Again, that's why we sort of delete it after it's no longer useful. I would even shorten that window because it's much more about a sort of transient moment that's not going on your permanent record, right? It's it's just something that we're talking about right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I think like the general principle for Dojo, and this is something that everybody reads about when they join the company, but you know, it's, I think it's worth actually sharing publicly. Like there's like a really simple long-term principle to always act in the long-term best interests of kids. And like, that's it. So every other action we take is downstream of that mindset. That's why the business model is the way it is. That's why the, the world is designed to be closed in the way it is. That you, know, you can look at all of our actions and understand why they add up. And like that's how I intend to operate. That's how we intend to operate. And you know, honestly, I think that's why if you believe that society is shifting into a hybrid future where there's going to be real world learning and online learning in some form, you, you really want a company that's built around the right principles, I think. I think that's why there's sometimes an allergic reaction to maybe more mainstream consumer internet companies trying to retrofit their products to serve kids, whatever, because they're built with a different principle at the core. And, you know, like whether the networks are massively open, whether it's all about passive kind of screen scrolling, like whatever it is, whether parents are never connected, like in a way you can't retrofit. You have to, you have to purpose build, especially when you're dealing with this demographic. And so I think Dojo really tries to be purpose built to be in the best interests of kids. And that's why we make all the decisions that we make. Okay, we have to move to the fun part of the conversation now. I want to know what your favorite book, each of you, is about learning. Well, I'll show one just because I was rereading it recently. I loved um, Mathematical Mindset by Joe Bowler. Her Limitless Mind is also great. Liam, what's your favorite book about learning? I would say it's A Theory of Fun for Game Design by Raf Costa, written by a game designer. And I think it's mostly written for game designers, but it, I would recommend it to any educator as well. Okay. What's your favorite book not about learning? I'm going to say um, <laughs> A Mathematical Theory of Communication by Claude Shannon. Sam? Yeah, there's one I was rereading uh, recently. It's called The Beginning of Infinity by David du I'm going to butcher his last name. Deutsch or Deutsch? David Deutsch. David Deutsch. Yeah, there you go. Last one in. What are you binge watching? There's one normal one, one weird one. I mean, the normal one, I think everyone's probably just watched The House of Dragon or whatever. Uh -huh. Um like so give us the weird friends. one. This thing called Alone. A bunch of survivalists get dropped off in the wild alone, and they just have to survive. And they get to take, I don't know, 10 items or something with them. And it's it's weirdly addictive. <laughs> Love it. Liam? Mine is, I'm, I'm binge-watching True Detective, which I never watched, which I think is a common thing for me. Like, something will be really popular, and everyone's watching it and talking about it. And I'm like, ah, too popular. And then about... Four years later, I'll kind of sheepishly start watching it as well. And then there's no one to talk about it with. But <laughs> There's always the internet. You can find someone. Sam and Liam, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. Cheers, Jenny. I first met Sam when I interviewed him in 2016. At the time, I was writing a lot about the very negative impact of social media on young kids, tweens and teens. And I arrived to the conversation very skeptical of the company's lofty mission to give every child a meaningful education. Facebook wanted to connect the world to make it a better place. Google wanted to do no evil. And it was pretty clear to me that no one had the best interests of kids at heart when it came to big tech. But Sam impressed me. He seemed to want to do right by teachers, to acknowledge the profound weakness in school design and education at scale, while also seeing the brilliance of many teachers and the fundamental desire kids have to learn. It's a hard balance, but it's the right one. Schools don't work in a million ways. They are also central to the project of humanity and often staffed with teachers doing their damnedest to try and protect kids and prepare them for the future. 
supporting those teachers while also keeping tabs on what parents want and need is a smart strategy. I do think the mission statement shouldn't promise to deliver education to every child. Class Dojo doesn't have to measure its effectiveness, meet state standards, or make sure kids know how to do fractions. But I do agree with Liam that turning kids on to learning is a worthy project with possible benefits to academic learning. Elliot Washer and Charles Muchkowski, founders of Big Picture Learning, once wrote, quote, our greatest task is to buy students time to grow into themselves without giving up on them. I think there's a lot to that statement and we need as many tools as possible to do that. In our first interview, I asked Sam how we plan to make money. He said then what he says now, scale and trust first, money later. When it launched its freemium product, Dojo Plus in 2019, the company was profitable within four months. In sticking to their mission, one, build scale, two, deliver learning kids love, they've done something smart. They've created a barrier to entry, which is doing right by teachers and families at scale. I don't know if that's going to be enough for the company to succeed in this bold new chapter, but I know I hope it will be. Thanks for listening. We'll link to the items mentioned in today's podcast in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share it. And you can find out more about our community of global education leaders and upcoming meetups by joining our mailing list at learnit.world. In the meantime, stay safe, stay curious, and see you next week.